You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of SequelCast 2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts. Where did you get this? Awesome little junk store in Chinatown. Can I pick them up, Dad? Sure, go ahead. Just be careful. You gotta be gentle. I will. I hope he's housebroken. Hmm. Oh, isn't he cute? Has it got a name, Dad? Yeah, Mogwai. What? Mogwai. I don't know, some Chinese word. I just call him Gizmo. He seems to like it. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show that looks at movies and a franchise one film at a time. We're kicking off a look at a new franchise this time around with uh, Gremlins. Directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, starring Zach Galligan, V.P. Cates, Corey Feldman, and uh, Judge Reinhold. And uh, off a budget of $11 million, it grossed $153 million. I believe that's just domestically, according to BoxOfficeMojo.com. And uh, you can check out episodes of the sequel cast or of our sister shows, Sequel Commentary and Sequel Cast Special, at SequelCast.com. Uh, with me is Thrasher. Hello, everybody. We have a very special guest in the live in the Portland studio for the first time, uh, Chris. Christopher, Christopher Walsh. Uh, Christopher Walsh. Twitter handle spl- Splunge2000, and um, most of what I say you can find from uh, links on there. Great. Um, Yep, and you know, I, I invited you because I noticed you did a lot of Gremlins tweets recently. You're, you're listening to the soundtrack by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, I listened to the gold, uh, to the score for the second one a lot. Um, oh, actually, that's an awesome score! And it's actually um, kind of a special, kind of a special score for me. Uh, one of the relatively early ones that I really noticed, and uh, and I noticed the original the original films and film score. I was just old enough to see the original film in theaters uh, and and was very definitely I was in high school when the second one came out and uh, very much appreciated uh, the, the twisted sense of the twisted sense of humor of it and <laughs> I probably appreciated it even more once I once I was older but Definitely liked the original film a, a lot when I was a kid. Cool. Can you lean closer to the mic? Talk? Great. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's better. Okay. Mic checks. That's what people listen to sequ- uh, sequel cast for. Uh, and don't forget your pop filter so you don't pop your peas. Right. You don't want to pop your peas. You might have to see a doctor if that happens. It's that kind of a problem. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Gremlins came out in 84, as in I, I would have been two years old at the time. But, uh, I saw this for the first time on uh, on video, and 
it's uh it is a christmas movie even in a strange way even though we're covering it in uh october because we were trying to think of a, a kind of a not really horror movie but sort of a something that can be considered a scary movie sort of franchise for part of october you know, I think that's that's one of the points in this movie's favor. You know, kind of like how how Die Hard is is an action movie set at Christmas. Gremlins is a is a twisted, darkly comic horror movie set at Christmas, and that just creates such a wonderful juxtaposition. I believe this is one of Chris Columbus's first screenplays, and you know, Chris Columbus now is a director who has directed things like uh, Harry Potter one and two. Uh, he directed the movie of the musical Rent. Um. And gee, a lot of other uh, young Sherlock Holmes. Wait, no, he. I think I don't think he directed that. I'm not sure. Just, uh, he it was one of his early scripts. Barry Levinson directed. It. Okay, very good. And he right. was uh, he was Home Alone. The first two Home Alones were his. Yeah, he directed. And we've covered those Home Alones in older episodes of the Sequel Cast, which you can check at sequelcast.com. Uh, and uh, when I think of uh, so Thrasher, when did you see this first? Was it on video? Uh, the first time I saw it, I think, was on cable, probably in 86. I'm, I'm not entirely sure of the year. Uh, I caught... Uh, I, I I don't remember whether or not I ever... I actually saw the whole thing at the time. I may have only seen the second half, but I remember... Because uh, I think it was my father, myself, and my little sister, we were watching it, and... The thing that really stands out in my mind is I love seeing Gizmo riding around with a car, but but the climax, which we'll talk we'll talk about later, it like it just it freaked me the hell out at that age, and uh, it wasn't until later I think that I finally saw the movie all the way through. That's a big thing that stuck out for me rewatching this film for the sequel cast. Is you? Uh, oh, I forgot to mention at the top of the show I should have. Our theme song, as always, is written <laughs> is written and performed by Mark with a C. Okay. You can check him out at markwithac.com. Uh, so with Gremlins, you know, the Gremlins don't appear until about halfway through the movie. And it, it shows... A daring choice. Yeah, it shows restraint. Well, especially compared to now, I think they'd have the Gremlins showing up in the first two minutes. Um, what do you think well, about that, fun. Chris? What do you think about that with uh, the time they take before they show the Gremlins? Do you like the time they take in this film? It was a whole, it was really part of the design of it. Even back when '84, when they released it, they were so careful about sh- uh, not showing the Gremlins in the advertising, and they they kept a really tight lid on that. And and they edited the clips that they've showed on television to let people uh, avoid saying too much of the Gremlins. And uh, so most of you only saw a quick glimpse of, of Gizmo, and you never saw any of the uh, the evil, crazy gremlins from later. But it, the thing is, you go into the film knowing that bad stuff's going to happen, and uh, and so you're waiting. When is it going to happen? When are things going to go bad? When are things going to uh, when are they going to screw up the uh, the rules? And uh, and they keep and they keep almost doing that, and then uh, and then realizing how important the rules are, but then other issues happen that result that result in the the gremlins multiplying and going crazy and eating. 
we know it's it's funny you you mention that because the original poster for the movie is just a, is you know a, a guy holding a box and you can see like little eyes and you can see Gizmo's hands but you have no idea what's in the box. But as I recall, by the time this hit home video, boom, Gremlin on a Christmas present right on the box and like. The, for for better or worse, the Gremlins kind of became so so iconic that, that they were that in in the eighties you couldn't not know what a Gremlin looked like. Yeah, I think there's a re-release. They had a reason to redo the poster so that Stripe is, has slashed through it and he's vandalizing the the poster. And so, but oh, until yeah. then, they were back in the first release. They were being especially careful. Uh, let's not let's not show this and. Uh, which is good and restrained. It's an interesting, they're, they're interesting design. I, mean, I think they're just a neat-looking creature, both in the good form and the in the evil form. Well, that's that's a big difference between the way the way the movies are are, are made and marketed today and, and back then. Because like, like uh, uh, around the same time, Howard the Duck came out, and it was a big secret. You know what Howard the Duck was going to look like, how he was going to operate. Uh, there, there seem to be, at least in the film marketing departments, there seem to be a lot more respect for trying to keep things secret that the director wanted to to keep to keep secret, as opposed to today, where half the time, if not more than half the time, the most exciting, best, most hard hitting things you see in the trailer, and so they lose so much impact when you finally see them in the film. Right. I mean, I don't think you know the poster for Transformers would have no Transformers on it. You know, it's uh, yeah, I, despite I, the fact that the original trailer for Transformers makes it seem like a dark science fiction film with lots of atmosphere. Yeah, with the on Mars, yeah, it's a very atmospheric uh, trailer. And no robots talking. No, no robots talking. Um, so I mean, with Gremlins, uh, the big thing that jumps out for me from this picture is just the score by Jerry Goldsmith, specifically the the Gremlin rag. One of the times that Goldsmith uh, had a chance to go nuts. I mean, Goldsmith <laughs> didn't do as much comedy as I expected him to. He sometimes wasn't. He sometimes he sometimes wasn't the best at comedy. Um, but one of the but it turned out uh, he and Joe Dante were a good match. They'd worked together one time previous to this. Uh, he had done because Goldsmith had done the score of the Twilight Zone, the movie, including. Joe Dante's segment about the the kid who's uh, made a cartoon existence for him and his family that he uses to terrorize them, and uh, and and it was a chance for Goldsmith to. I keep I keep saying go nuts. I'll try to find more words to uh, describe. Well, you that. know what it is the the, the score that he the oh pardon getting a chance to be cartoonish um, but also have an edge to it that uh, these are cartoons that can kill you whether that's in Twilight Zone and these are cartoonish characters in Gremlins that can kill you well I think what it is is that the film the score that he creates and the way the score is used uh, by Columbus in the film it's like the best of the classic Warner Brothers cartoon scores which have so much energy and just play up the action on screen so well I mean, this really is, this really is a, a, this is, this movie is directed like a classic Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny Elmer Fudd cartoon if actual physical harm could befall the characters. And Joe Tante's good at that. 
Oh, yeah. He is. And, you know, speaking of Jerry Goldsmith, <laughs> I mean, they worked through a lot of together for a lot of Dante's career. And, in fact, Jerry Goldsmith's last uh, film he worked on was Looney Tunes Back in Action, which was directed, again, by Joe Dante. So it was a 20-year collaboration between the two of them. Sure. Um, now, I mean, one actor from Gremlins I, I don't really see in anything else is Zach Galligan, who plays the lead role of Billy. Have you seen him in anything other than Gremlins? That's a conundrum. I'm blanking. <laughs> but hey, we have the internet and there's info about everything about everybody. You know, I I may have seen him in Prince Valiant only because I saw about 15 minutes of that movie. That being said, it's not that good of a movie despite its source material. He has a part... Oh, I saw him in All Tied Up. Yeah, he has a part in Hatchet 3, apparently, that's coming out next year. So, but no, he hasn't been, like, a mainstream actor or anything since Gremlins, I think that's safe to say. And I think he's... Oh, he was in Voyager. He's uh, he's good in Gremlins, with his part. But it's supposed to... I mean, it's, I don't think Billy is the most interesting character. He's very wholesome. He, uh... Well, I think that's that's the point, though. Yeah. He's, he's, the, he's the typical American young adult. Yeah. In, in that Joe Dante, Chris Columbus kind of way. And he, yeah, Def, definitely an innocent who gets in over his head really quickly. Who, well, not really quickly, but eventually. He's, he's the kind of care. kid they probably were. It's also worth ah. mentioning, when uh, Gremlins was released, uh, it had a PG rating. It was before they had a PG-13 rating, but it was Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that helped inspire the PG-13 rating. And the first cut of Gremlins, when they had, uh, when they first submitted it, maybe uh, even before they submitted it, but uh, there was more. Uh, be blunt, more, there was more death in it. Uh, first, the Gremlins killing the, uh, the the family's dog, and then later in that battle with uh, the mother, um, actually killed her. Uh, as they were filming it, they decided uh, that the killing the dog was a little too much. Uh, they had filmed uh, the mo- the mother character dying, and then said, "Actually, that's too much too." And so they they re so reshot, reedited to make sure that uh, you knew she was all right. You see, you see her back at the end. Um, but it, there was uh, they kept almost going to an R rating. Had, had the earlier draft of the script been done, it definitely would have been an R rating. That's this version of the script where they kill everybody in a fast food restaurant and <laughs> specifically make it a point not to eat any of the food. Huh. Wow. <laughs> I love that. That's funny. Um, that was an earlier draft. I'm not sure where that would have, when that was taken out, maybe even before I, it was filmed. Don't know. I would love to see the original cut. Yeah. Uh, now, Phoebe Cates is uh, uh-huh. the romantic lead. So this was in 84, so this would have been after Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And we get to see her in something PG. Yes! Right. Yeah, she doesn't take her top off in Gremlins. That would be inappropriate. Cute. Yeah, no, no, absolutely still cute. And I think she's... We, we don't get to see her mogwise. No, no, we don't get to see her mogwise, or her gizmo, for that matter. Uh <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, there's some actors in this I forgot were even in this, rewatching it. Like, Judge Reinhold of Beverly Hills Cop fame plays kind of the asshole boss. 
uh, Gerald Hopkins. And he's killed in a deleted scene, I think. That's not in the film. And, um, because, you know, he's not in the later part of the picture very much. But he, Judge Reinhold does good at playing really obnoxious. Apparently a sweet on real life. That That's which is true of a lot of people who are good at playing obnoxious. Huh. <laughs> and uh, Corey Feldman is in this, too. And, you know, I mean, he was real big uh, in the 80s. He's still, you know, a child star at that point. And I got to see Corey Feldman in concert. Have I ever talked about that? Uh, not in detail. Not not on the show, probably. So uh, Corey Feldman, at the, I, I saw it in, I guess, 2000 or 2000. No, I think it's in 2000, maybe, not even... Yeah, uh, the Corey Feldman Band is what it was called, and Corey Feldman did the lead vocals. And he's come out with three albums so far, uh, as far as I know. And he was promoting his, I think, second album that was a concept album about the uh, death of River Phoenix, or it's inspired by that. So it, it's not the kind of tracks you play live that people can really dance to. It's really moody, dark stuff. And I think I like he did a cover of Stand By Me at the concert that I thought was pretty good. But, um, so that's fun. I'll have to post that on our Facebook page, the picture of me with Corey Feldman from, uh, when I was 19. That's pretty funny to see. So it was about when, so he did this about when he did, uh, whichever Friday the 13th film he was in. That was, uh, Friday the 13th for the final chapter, which was not the final chapter, really, but that's what it they called it. It never is. It never is, no. <laughs> uh, so 84, that's before Goonies. But not too much before Goonies, so that's interesting. You know, there's there's a crossover. I'm sure that, that should have happened. Goonies versus Gremlins. You know, there's a line of dialogue in Goonies where also written by Chris Columbus. Yeah, or what is it, Chris? Do you remember? Like they're on the phone or something. They're trying to tell the uh, they're trying to tell the sheriff about the about the crooks and uh, and they've apparently had a history of crying wolf. And he one of the things the sheriff asks him is, "This is not again about those creatures that multiply when you put water on them." <laughs> oh yeah. So if you're paying attention, that's a pretty weird connection between Goonies and Gremlins. Manga spin-offs are pretty popular. Someone ought to do a manga somebody ought to do a manga <laughs> spin-off that's a prequel to Goonies about them fighting the Gremlins, and someone should pay me lots of money to write it. Uh, Goonies versus Gremlins. I like it. That could be good. Uh I love Howie Mandel as Gizmo. Oh, yeah. It just sounds really cute. And I think what's really funny is I was watching the documentary on the DVD and Howie Mandel talks about how he did the voice of Gizmo in all the different languages. And they had to have an interpreter go and, uh, you know, redo the different chirps and noises and things he said (laughs) to be appropriate for the different languages. Was was Mandel uncredited in this film? Uh, I believe it was a big secret when it first came out. I'm sure he gets a credit, like, but it, somewhere on mm-hmm. screen. But I think I think it was kind of hush hush at the time. And he did get credit in Gremlins too. Oh yeah. Yeah, and Howie Mandel at the time was a real big uh, stand-up comedian. And I mean, now he's better known for like hosting the show Deal or No Deal, which I don't think that's on TV anymore. But um, and he's part of America's Got Talent. That's though, right. With, yeah. uh, with Howard Stern and uh, Sharon Osbourne. Yeah, one of the hosts on that one. And someone who rubs me the wrong way, so I don't watch those, so I can't say more about them. Some of the other grem- some of the other actors who uh, did the Gremlin voices, by the way, if I remember my trivia correctly, included uh, Michael Winslow, the Police Academy sound effects guy, mm-hmm. and Peter Cullen. 
Optimus Prime himself. See, he could do other voices than that voice. And Frank Welker, who of course was Megatron. Which it's funny because you'd think Frank Welker would be would be Gizmo himself. Mm. Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting yeah. bit of casting. No, Frank Welker is well known for doing you know animal noises and things in, in countless movies. He's Santa's little helper on The Simpsons. If you've if you've heard an animal in <laughs> a film, it's probably him. Yeah, he's ridiculously talented at that. Supposedly, you can ask him to do like you can like he does a stunt where you can ask him to do like an elephant eating a flock of ducks, and it's just <laughs> this hilarious collection of sounds. I'd love to hear that. I've seen a clip of him. I guess he did the monkey noises for Curious George in the movie that came out a few years ago. Oh, and, and just watching him uh, on this video clip on YouTube of him breaking out, like talking normally. Okay, so how do you want this take? And then he breaks out into these really convincing monkey noises. And just coming out of this sort of slightly tubby uh, old man body. It's just uh, very funny to watch. Um, now, I mean, when... Uh, I like that they don't, never go into the details in, in Gremlins about, you know, where they got these creatures from. The dad picks it up from uh, Chinatown for 200 bucks. Well, no, they, they come from uh, mystery shops, which are a staple of, uh, of uh, fantasy literature and sometimes pulp. Uh, pulp stories, where it's just a weird shop containing weird things, and the thing you buy is just something, it's something that motivates whatever story you're getting yourself into. And hey, an excuse for, K- is, that how you, is it K-Luke or K-Luke? How do you pronounce his name? An excuse for him to be in this. Oh no, the actor is Mr. Uh, Wayne is really great. Oh, he's awesome. Exactly. He just has so much, I, I wish there was more scenes with them, you know, and they uh, never made a Gremlins three for whatever reason, but and he's dead now. But I think he certainly would have been in there had they. Gremlins two did all right, but it didn't do as well as it needed to for a third film to happen. Huh? Since it was a fairly expensive movie, if I remember correctly, the second one. Well, especially in the pre CGI days. Oh sure, right. You had to do everything with the animatronics and puppets on set and stuff. Yeah, but I just I just love the look of the shopkeeper. I love the uh, I love the skinny pipe. I love the long nails. The the one glassy eye. It's just like he's the perfect shopkeeper for that kind of magical mystery shop. I like that even though Gizmo looks cute when they spill water on him. It, you know the way it's done is really clever. Or the, or the um... well, that brings us to the first. The first was it the is it the first or second rule? Don't get him wet. Never feed them after midnight. Yeah, it's it's, it's, never, it's never, uh, never put them in the light, never get them wet, and don't feed them after midnight. But never put them in the light. Does that mean, like, a light bulb? Is, do they mean the sun? Well, no, no bright light. Oh, bright light, it's right. photosensitive. That's right. Bright light, bright light. Sure. Bright light! It's pretty good, Thrasher. Thank you. I mean, Gizmo wasn't here. I thought he was with you. Nope. Thought he was with you. Um, do, l- ladies and gentlemen, do not panic. There may be gremlins on the line. <laughs> so, what do you think about... I like how there's different designs in the Mogwais when uh, Gizmo gets water on them before they turn into gremlins. So you get to see a little bit of their personalities. 
And uh, the way how Gizmo and the Mogwais look in this is a bit uglier than they had them look in Gremlins 2. Yeah, they, they kind of, well, they, they, they remember in this movie that they are, d- despite Gizmo's cuteness, he is still a monster, so there has to be something sort of off about him. But they really go nuts with the other Mogwai. They have so much great personality. And you first start to see uh, the disturbing parts of it, because the, if I remember correctly, the the, the the boiling up of the of the bumps that turn into the other mogwai you know, that's I mean, it's kind of looks like boiling scabs it's a little disgusting but it's uh, so, so the early sign that okay ugly stuff is coming up it's a great grotesque practical effect and like yeah. and it looks like it really makes it seem like Gizmo's in some sort of pain when this happens to him. He Gizmo's Aww. got a good heart, you know. He doesn't want this to happen, and so you can tell that he's just going through all sorts of discomfort uh, when the when when he starts to spawn. So, what did you did you really buy that he took the gremlins to his science teacher to show it to him, and then stuff really uh, starts to go loose in the swimming pool? That always struck me as kind of strange. I would. Uh, that's yeah. like if, if I would try to find an expert. I honestly would. Always try to find someone smarter than you. Good lesson no matter what. Well, but just because he's a biology teacher in high school doesn't mean he's like a xenobiology expert. But I, uh, he, No, no, it's a ter- they're monsters. It would be a teratologist. Is that the phrase, teratology? Well, the teratology technically is the study of deformities, but it's also a catch-all term for the study of monsters. I did not know that. That's pretty interesting. Good to know. Yep. You know what else is good Your to know? Sequel cast fact. Another thing that's good to know is some of our sponsors at sequelcast.com. <laughs> if you go to Are any of them monsters? Uh the, the sponsors are not monsters, but they're sponsors and uh we'd like you to check them out. If you go to sequelcast.com, you can check out we got a section called buy a movie where next time you want to do your amazon.com uh, shopping, you can click on one of those and then do your shopping and we get uh, a portion of uh, what you buy on Amazon of the proceeds, so that helps. There's a donate button through PayPal if you want to help us out that way. And uh, you can listen to SequelCast on Stitcher, which is an app for your smartphone, you know, whether it's a Windows phone, Android, or iPhone, or you can listen to it on your iPad or desktop or laptop computer, and you can listen to podcast streaming on the go. And uh, that's something I think that's really, really effective so, ride the stream. Ride the stream at Stitcher. Oh, and you can sign up at stitcher.com slash sequelcast, and sequelcast automatically gets added as a favorite. And again, if you want to listen to uh, sequelcast, uh, sequel commentary, sequelcast special, you can do so at sequelcast.com, or you can check out the Facebook page at facebook.com slash sequelcast. Plug, 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 back to Gremlins on sequelcast. Uh, do you have a favorite of, like, the evil Gremlins? I mean, I know Stripe is kind of the main one. And they don't really give them names in the film, do they? I don't believe so. Yeah, yeah they don't. So I can't really give a I... good example of that, but just a general, just a general chaos, which is what gremlins are age are agents of. I mean, that's where the original myth came from. The the, the World War Two uh, machines owed seemingly inexplicably uh, malfunctioned or, or, or other problems and the bomber and the bomber pilots who were dealing with bulky equipment saying it's gremlins is doing this 
Yeah, and, and, and which is uh, shows up in uh, shows up in two actually cartoons from that era. There's the classic uh, falling hair, the Bugs Bunny cartoon, where Bugs Bunny finds a gremlin trying to sabotage munitions <laughs> yeah. in an airfield. And then there's also the classic uh, Russian Rhapsody, also known as Gremlins from the Kremlin, which is just huh. brilliant. Where uh, where the Germans decide to send a real Aryan Superman to bomb Allied headquarters, so they send Adolf Hitler, and so Gremlins sneak out of Russia to sabotage Hitler's bomber, and it's just great music, uh, great tortures and in- indignities being inflicted on an uh, animated Hitler, and stuff that's still st- 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 you know a cartoon that I'm sure influenced uh, the movie when this was when it was uh, you know it influenced the imagination of the the writers and directors of this movie, and Watch, watch, just watch, just watch Russian Rhapsody. It's a great piece of animation. There's stuff in it that is referenced in animation to this day. I mean, I do want to say, speaking of Gremlins and other media, you have, uh, you know, that Twilight Zone episode, which is also in Twilight Zone the movie. Although in the movie, the segment was directed by George Miller. Uh, you know, in, in the uh, you know, what is it called? There's something on the plane, right? A terror Nightmare, at twenty thousand feet. Nightmare at twenty thousand feet. Yeah, Nightmare 20,000 feet. That's the one. There you go. And There's something on the wing of the plane! Yeah, we're in the uh, TV show, The Twilight Zone. The guy that thinks he sees a gremlin on the plane is uh, played by William Shatner. And then in the movie, it's played by John Lithgow. There's something on the wing! <laughs> Not bad. But in that bit, do they, in, that, in the Twilight Zone episode and uh, part of the movie, do they call it a gremlin specifically? Or... You know, I don't think it's ever referred to hmm. as a gremlin. It's just kind of assumed because gremlins sabotage planes. It, it, it is at least assumed. I know when the, the Simpsons did their version of it for one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes, and it's a gremlin on the side of a... It's Bart seeing a gremlin on the side of a bus that's destroying yeah. the bus. Terror uh, at four and a half feet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he had enough time to say, hey, there's a gremlin on the side of the bus. And they look over, and they see Hans Molman driving... A gremlin, <laughs> of course. Uh, and then they run him off the road, and it doesn't yeah. even hit anything, and it bursts into flame. Because <laughs> that's the luck and the life of Hans Molman. Hi, I'm Ray, and this is my friend Alex. Hi. And we do a show called No More Whoppers. Between us, we're as old as four RPG protagonists. And now Alex will give us a funny anagram for the name of the show. Uh, big old knockers. Uh. Join us every month or so on the Greenlit Podcast Network. How does Crazy Taxi stack up against, say, Papers, Please? And what's the one 3DO FMV game that gives Mario Party a run for its money? Find out on Hardcore Gaming 101's Top Games, where we objectively, definitively, and scientifically rank the games you nominate for our ever-growing list. HG101's Top Games, twice a week, every week, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. So there's certainly a lot of uh, scenes in Gremlins where characters watch other films. (laughs) I love that. You know, like in in, uh, Billy's house, him and his family are watching, among other things, It's a Wonderful Life in his bedroom. And then later on, you got gremlins watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And they get to, they sing with one of the songs in that film, I believe. They're watching Snow White, and they love it. <laughs> and that's a real coup, because I can't imagine Disney loosening the reins of that film enough for a clip of it to be shown in a non-Disney film. You know, I think the, uh, Steven Spielberg, as, an ex- as a producer on this film... Must have been uh, the reason to convince him to loose to you know loosen the purse strings on that, because you're right. It is unusual to see Disney movies, let alone you know the premier Disney cartoon that really got them started, Snow White well, and the think, Seven Dwarves. 
I think some of the old men were still alive at Disney at the time. I don't think it was yeah, no, they were. The, it, the monolithic corporate entity we know it as today. In the early 80s, I mean, Disney had some of the classic old men animators on staff, but they were really sort of in flux with the releases like The Black Cauldron and Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. Which were oh, about yeah. to come out, and uh, in the case of Black Cauldron, land with a thud. Yeah. Which was unfortunate, but that's a... I'm a Disney fan. I'm glad they uh, figured out to, how to keep going. There's a documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty that's, uh, that I strongly recommend that's about that period from the 80s to the mid-90s. Uh, Disney animation, feature animation, came close to just not existing anymore. Mm. So plug for that film if you can if you can find it. It's, it's a worthwhile documentary. Um but but again that's uh that's a tangent for what we're talking about on this show <laughs> well, tangents are a, a sequel cast nay you know a podcast tradition period you listen to any podcast and five minutes in they're bound to go on a tangent and that's not i'm not insulting any show in particular it just happens to be the case and it's something about conversations they ramble which is fine uh so with uh one thing about Gremlins that I'm not crazy about is the real cartoonish nature of uh, the mean woman in town. So Ger- Geraldine Page and, the, and don't they use at one point? Don't they use uh, like Wizard of Oz style music for her at some point? Like, that's kind of like da 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 kind of thing. Yeah, I think that happens. Yeah, you it's a little bit of right. Well, you know what I think that is though. I think that comes out of. You know, because it, it is, you know, this is like the typical American town and, you know, the main, and, you know, Billy is like, you know, the t- typical American young man. Part part of that boyhood experience is the cranky old lady that makes your life hell who lives down the block. I know I had that uh, growing up. And it maybe it's not as universal now as it used to be, but that just used to be, if you were a young boy, that was just part of your life at some point. I understand it's an archetype. It's just when the lead character is in high school that there's an old woman in town that's kind of rude and sort of annoys him. Just, I guess, if he if Billy would have been younger, I could have swallowed the the old woman shtick a bit more. Well, you know, maybe she moved from this town and then she became the old woman in Home Alone 3. It uh, wouldn't have surprised me. I mean, it's certainly the same kind of character. And uh, what's something else you want to talk about Gremlins, Thrasher? Oh, actually, um, I love this movie is packed with like eye, eyeball kicks and like interesting gags. Like there's uh, and references to other you know classic uh, classic uh, science fiction movies because there's a thing there's the thing where it was, it's, it's where because like, Billy's dad is an inventor and you know he's he's always trying to invent patent and sell gadgets like that all in one like shaving grooming kit like Swiss Army cube. But there's a thing where he's like at a at a at a uh, a conference for for inventors and he calls home and first like Robbie the robot is in the background of some of those scenes I believe quoting lines from Forbidden Planet will 47 gallons be sufficient uh, but then the other thing is when he when the father's on the phone one of the first times we cut to him in the background is the time machine from George Powell's movie of the same name based on the novel by H.G. Wells you know then it cuts back to Billy and the rest of the family then it cuts back to Billy's father the time machine is gone implying that it works and it traveled through time while he was on the phone 
That was intentional. Oh yeah. That what was not intentional is that when they had uh, Jerry Goldsmith, Jerry Goldsmith again, he got to do a cameo in that uh, in in one of those scenes. You see him in the background, and they could not get him to not look at the camera. Goldsmith <laughs> is not an actor. <laughs> he did it, though. He did a better job when he did his cameo in Gremlins Two. What's that? A rat? <laughs> <laughs> But like I love that I love that th- I love that this film like gives itself connections to, to classic movies because those are the films that I grew up with and they're also the films that uh, they're also the films that uh, Chris Columbus Steven Spielberg and, uh, Joe and Joe Dante grew up with and I just I love that I love kind of inserting those things to do justice to your influences. Yeah, there's a doctor in town named Doctor Moreau, for example. <laughs> yeah. Zach says hi to him at the beginning. Did you, uh, Chris, did you enjoy the scene in the film where it's an infamous scene where Phoebe Cates uh, does a story about her father, how her father died? That made me sad. Made you sad? Uh, oh, to, an ex- to an extent. I mean, it's a, it's a genuinely horrifying image, and, you know, and it's sad that that happened to the char- character. I think that's based on. I found out later that, if I remember correctly, it's based on a Gahan Wilson a, a comic strip. Hmm. But I'm sure that's 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 almost too good an image. It has to have existed for a while. But I don't know how far back it goes. But you no, know, but almost a perfect example of the holiday going horribly wrong, and and which is what the film's about. Go. Oh, that's a good point. It takes me out of the movie a little bit myself, but and it's something Joe Dante fought to kept in. They kept on wanting to cut that scene out of the film. Huh. Do you like it, Thrasher? I I do, and I I like that you know that that story about like gremlins in World War Two. It reminds me. It 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 actually in a lot of ways reminds me of the story that Quint tells in Jaws about you know being uh, about being in the South Pacific. Yeah, the uh, I do like the the showdown in the end between Gizmo and Stripe in their little racing cars. Oh, that's so cool! In the store, and they do go and they do go all out with you know, making it a uh, an almost the ending is almost hard to watch when when Stripe finally gets full blast <laughs> sun on him. I mean that freaked me out a little bit, and I was uh, I was. Uh, I was 10 when I saw that. Just old enough. My parents knew I'd, I'd handle it okay. They knew I'd have trouble with Temple of Dune that same summer, so they didn't take me to that. Um, uh, but but that's strong image, yeah. Yeah, the the climax of the movie, like I, you know, it that's the scene that really freaked me out. You know, when when you know Stripe has his horrible melting death and you know dissolves into that pool of water. But then that last minute where his skeleton, that last stinger when his skeleton jumps out, <laughs> that just terrified yeah. me. That, that, but it's, it's an experience, looking back on it, it's an experience I'm glad I had, but that was, that was that's real intense when you're six years old. Yeah. And remember, and remember it's, it's, it's worth adding, you know, that film and Temple of Doom are the reasons we have the PG-13 now, because yep. uh, they... Knew that okay, PG isn't quite enough for this, but it's still not quite an R. And so it was, it was actually with only when in a couple of months of of uh, Gremlins and Temple of Doom coming out that uh, 
that the MPAA had uh, gotten the PG-13 rating working. That is that. That's assuming that it actually works. I have my issues with their rating system and their whole process. Yeah, but I was paying attention at the time. It was it was it was interesting to see that in the news, people complaining about the movie. There are people who are genuinely offended by Gremlins, and I can and I can understand that to an extent. We look around the what? same time. PG movies. I mean, I can see why a PG thirteen rating was necessary, but like a PG movie like Airplane features bare breast in a scene, and that wasn't considered. Oh a, yeah. A big deal. I mean, so it's, uh, on the other hand, you know, things that were rated R for blood and violence and stuff in the 80s would get a PG-13 today, I think. I think they've gotten a lot more lenient on violence, but this is a whole nother topic, perhaps for a sequel cast special. Um, we should do a sequel yeah, cast special about how we've seen things so, rated. Chris, oh, is hey, there, yes. Or, what, what do you guys think of Dick Miller? Oh, Dick Miller. Uh, Joe Dante has Dick Miller in a lot of his films. I think in every one of his films. Yeah. I believe so. And, um... Hey, come on, old reliable. I mean, he's He's just... good. He's awesome. Absolutely. Like, I remember him back from the Roger Corman movies he used to do. He is great. Yeah. Well, he has such a great face, too. And he looks believable. He looks like a real person. No one will ever... Uh... He has a mug. Yeah, he has a great mug. No one would ever say Dick Miller has Hollywood looks. <laughs> But he's solid and reliable, and you oh, yeah. like you, you just I just like seeing him show up. I'm glad they brought him back, and because you if you watch just Gremlins, uh, it's very easy to take away that the, the Gremlins killed him and his wife, and I'm, I'm glad that the, they were able to come back for the for the sequel because that 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 takes a little bit of the edge off of the the first film, and I don't you mind that. You know what he's like? He's your he's your favorite kind-hearted uncle. That's what he's like when right. he comes on screen. Sure. Uh, Chris, is there anything you want to talk about Gremlins that we have not talked about so far? If you can find it, you might still be able to find this in used bookstores. Uh, it, it, it is one of the more deranged novelizations I've ever read. <laughs> it sounds like you've read it. Uh, no, well, I'm familiar with the history of horror movie novelizations, so I can I can imagine sometimes those authors would slip some really fascinating things into those books. It was novelized by George Guype, and he was the he had worked with Steve Martin on Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Man with Two Brains, and oh, classics. he and he just was able to go to town on adding all sorts of background, all sorts of explanations. You find out where the Gremlins came from, uh, and he. And he also did, this is me admiring the writing trick, even before I was a writer. Uh, there's one point where Pete's character, Pete, uh, who's Corey Feldman's character, is told he needs to do something, and he swears up and down he's going to do it. This is followed by the single shortest chapter I have ever read in a book. Two words. Pete forgot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's great. Pretty cool. Uh, I need to reread that. It's it's it is the best kind of nuts. Guy huh. didn't live much longer. He only he died in 1986. But before he died, he got to write uh, a novelization of the original Back to the Future, and that's even more insane. See if you can see if you can find that. Actually, there's a uh, uh, Ryan North, the guy who draw, who does the uh, the does dinosaur comics. Uh, has done a whole blog of him just 
analyzing the the craziness of Gype's Back to the Future novelization literally page by page. <laughs> so it's that's something that's really worth seeking out is uh, is what is what Gype Gype clearly had fun playing in the world of Gremlins and fun with Back to the Future. But that's another topic for another show. Sure, and uh, you know we've actually talked about Back to the Future. If you go to sequelcast.com, we did some episodes on those. You should talk about it. Uh, so, with well, what am I trying to say? Okay, so let's give Gremlins uh, a rating out of five stars. I'll begin, and then next Thrasher, and then finally uh, Chris. So I'll start. Uh, I give uh, Gremlins four out of five stars. I think uh, some of the uh, the characters are a little bit annoying and it takes a while for the gremlins to come. But, you know, it's certainly, it's a quintessential 80s movie. And that it's set in Christmas, you know, really gives a nice uh, flavor to the whole thing. The Jerry Goldsmith music is great. The special effects are great. I just think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real classic. Although I myself prefer the, the second film, which we'll talk about next week. Yes. Uh, Thrasher. I'm going to give it the full five. I think this movie's timeless. Uh, it is a smorgasbord of amazing practical special effects, animatronics, and puppetry. Um, I, I don't. I, I I love this movie. It just give and it, and it still and it still makes me feel a, a joy, hilarity, and terror whenever I watch it. Chris, um, Always a minefield. I've never been very good at giving the uh, the number rating. Um, it's easy to default to the three and a half out of five because that's you know more or less just over average. That's what most films are. Um, the gentleman's uh, B. Ah, that's it. But I'll I'll give it a, I'll give it a four. And it's a it's a movie that it doesn't seem to. I saw it again back in two thousand seven at a Court and Fatboy Midnight Movies. That's the most recent time I've seen it. Second time I got to see it on the big screen. And I felt that uh, it didn't that it didn't date nearly as much as a lot of 1980s films did. Mm. You know, it's a uh, it's it's uh, it was not trying to be hip, and I admire that about the about the film. It doesn't it doesn't need to be hip, and it, it's a fairly straightforward. Uh, it, it's it's very it's a it's very honest about being crazy. I admire the film for that, and I'm I'm glad I was able to handle the the scares when I was a ten year old. So I would say I would say I would give it a four. Hmm. I think uh, yeah. So why don't we play our pitch a sequel game, in which we pretend Gremlins didn't have a sequel made to it. We're going to throw around some ideas for what a Gremlin sequel could have been to the original film. Uh, I'll begin and Thrasher, then Chris, as we did before. Um, so with Gremlins, the way this ends, you know, uh, I'd like to do uh, an origin story, I think. And not the origin story from the novelization where, you know, uh, uh, Mogwai were invented by scientists on an alien planet. I think... You would have it take place in uh, in Asia or something, and that somehow the the Mogwai get from China to Chinatown, and it would end, I think, kind of like as the first movie begins with the uh, the father going to pick up, uh, going to try to sell his goods at the Chinatown shop. 
the gremlins are the real reason there's so few pandas because they've harassed them so badly. <laughs> I think you can do a lot of fun with uh, gremlins in an Asian setting, so I think that's what I would do. Thrasher? Oh, wait, i got to think of a title for it. Um, <laughs> the gremlins the first batch? Gremlins, the original batch. Okay. Thrasher? All right. Well, if I was to do it, I actually, kind of along the same lines, I want to do, I want to do a prequel to Gremlins, but it won't have anything to do with, um, with like how the Gremlins came to be. It's going to be, it's going to be, it, it's a prequel that Steven Spielberg could not say no to because it would be set during World War Two. And like Dick Miller and all the other older characters from from Gremlins, it would be about them uh, working for uh, working for the working uh, in in and on bombers in World War II on a special mission. Uh, on a special mission that's going on maybe a little bit before, a little bit after D-Day. It's a very important mission, but the whole time they're being harassed by gremlins. But one of the main catches is, uh, it, with except for the, fil- for the film's climax, uh, no human character will ever get a good look at a gremlin without dying. Uh, so, you know, so no matter what the gremlins do... No one will ever see a gremlin, and so people will always be able to sort of ride it off as, oh, just something just went wrong. Sometimes these things happen. But ah. the moment someone gets a good look at a gremlin, they're probably going to die. Uh, quite possibly after everyone else in the bomber calls them crazy. And in the end, they'll be able to do their mission, and they'll, you know, they'll get a narrow escape, having to deal with both Nazis and gremlins hmm. for the thrilling air, air, uh, air battle climax. I can see that. And, yeah, and this will be, and it'll be called, uh, uh, it'll be called uh, Gremlins Flight Mission Forty. Okay, <laughs> uh, Chris, what's an idea for a sequel you'd have? I'm gonna be lazy and steal somebody else's idea, okay. but a good source for it, storing, uh, for the stealing, because in the '80s there was a script by Terry Jones, the Monty, one of the Monty Python performers. Woo! Yeah, uh, that that was. Apparently seriously considered, and it was called Gremlins 2, The Forgotten Rule. Um, huh. And uh, among the effects that uh, that happen in this movie, that uh, the, the Gremlins... It, 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 um, like the eventual Gremlins 2, it is in Manhattan, they overrun the town. Um, but A, they overrun the town, uh, instead of this being contained in a single building... And uh, and one of the effects is that they start to grow. Apparently, the climax was a a, a King a King Kong sized gizmo and a King Kong sized <laughs> evil gremlin <laughs> wow. fighting fighting on and near the Empire State Building, and knocking it over. Nice. So there, I, I still, if I ever met Terry Jones, I think maybe one of the questions I ask him, what was the forgotten rule? <laughs> a lot of other questions. I'm an enormous my Python fan, but I can imagine asking him that. It's just whatever rule that when you break it, they become giant. Yeah, that'd be something pretty neat to to see. I didn't know that Terry Jones did a draft of a sequel. That's pretty cool, Chris. You can get paid very well for writing scripts that never, never get, get produced. Oh, sure. Absolutely. There's people that have had entire careers where they've never had a film produced, and yet <laughs> have been sitting on millions. Goals, uh, actually, to write one of those great unproduced screenplays and make money from it. Yes, money is important, of course. Um so we did pitch a sequel, now we're going to move on to what you're watching, in which we talk about a piece of media, whether it be book, film, TV show, video game, uh, comic, whatever, that we've enjoyed in the past week. I will start. Um, 
Have you seen Cabin in the Woods, Chris? Yes. Okay, and you've seen it too, Thrasher. I'm having an orgasm right now just thinking about it. Okay, so we'll talk about it briefly, and spoilers if you care about that sort of thing. I I liked it. People at work really loved it. I uh, It reminded me of the Truman Show more than anything else. I can oh. see that. And I think the the amount the movie gets really batshit crazy in the last uh, half hour, I know, which I appreciate. Great? I didn't think it would go that insane because I mean it's a bit over the top and, and campy at points. I, I think the one performance that bothered me is the actor that played the stoner character. Uh, what what bothered you about him? I don't know. I would have performed a more subtle stoner performance. And I know the idea is these people are manipulated. Uh, and I like that he gets to be smarter than the than the stoner character tends to be yeah. in this type of film. Well, his stoner and paranoia and pays off. They could do, and, they, right. and the filmmakers knew they could get that out of the out of the actor. I, mean, I remember I saw it in the theater. There's this huge the huge pop in the in the audience when the, he uh, turns this, an extendable bong into a weapon, yeah. <laughs> as you should. It's, yeah. it's phenomenal. No, I enjoyed it. I think I might like it more on a second viewing, because I think you might look at some things differently and try to look for all the the plants in there. It, it is it is quite possibly the greatest Lovecraftian movie ever made, and it's certainly the... And I know it's, it's, it isn't literal, but if you've ever played the board game uh, Betrayal at the House on the Hill... It's it's as if this movie it's as if Cabin in the Woods was an adaptation of that board game. Huh. I mean, I, I watching it, I did think it would make a great uh, TV show, Cabin in the Woods. Huh. You could do like an anthology series where each episode is a different group. Oh, okay, I could see that. Not not that it would all necessarily take place in the same cabin, but they do show there's different things that go on around the world, and I'm sure they'd have things in different cities. Oh, and such. And I mean, it sounds like it'd be very expensive uh, for a TV show, but given that Joss Whedon has done TV shows and stuff, I'm not saying that it would happen. TV shows that have often been unceremoniously canceled. uh... Well, I mean, I think now that Avengers made a billion dollars and he's doing some writing on this uh, Avengers spinoff TV show, I think just called S.H.I.E.L.D., um, I think his, his newer stuff will stay on TV a bit more. I hope so. And uh, it's confirmed that Joss Whedon, who was a co-writer on uh, Cabin in the Woods, is going to direct Avengers 2. I want to see, I I will say, I I think I want to see more film output uh, from him right now rather than uh, television output. Well, Thrasher, what have you been watching? What's something you've enjoyed? Well, I have been uh, I've I've been scrambling this past week to uh, finish uh, the source book, The Jester Dragon's Guide to Defects, which should be available on DriveThroughRPG.com by the time this episode drops. So I I have just have not had much time to to watch anything. But what I'll tell you what I have been doing because I finally got paid for some work that I did recently, uh, so I had some extra money. I'm finally getting caught back up with classic Fantastic Four. I love classic Fantastic Four. I really, you know, it, I really do believe it was America's greatest comics magazine. Uh, and I'm now working my way through uh, through Volume Five of the. I'm sorry, no, Volume Four of the Essential Reprints. I've already got Volume Five, so I'm ready to move on to that. Mm. I just, it's it's Stan Lee and Jack Kirby at the top of their game at Marvel, telling some amazing stories. So, Volume Five is that in the 70s? Uh I. Th- 
think I, I would actually need to check. I think they're still in the '60s. Oh, okay. I know Fantastic um, Four is one of the older Marvel comics that uh, Stanley worked on. Uh, do you enjoy Fantastic Four, Chris, or have you read any of those? Have not read them. Yeah, okay. I, I know them more by reputation. Uh huh. But I know what you're talking about, and they are one of the one of the first, and they sort of set all sorts of templates for the Marvel style. That yeah. This disparate group, weird super weird powers, uh, not and uh, but pulling to get pulling together to do good, but sometimes griping about it as they do it because personality clashes happen. Oh yeah, there's, the a fun. Tr- there's a tremendous amount of characterization, and I love that it's a team where they don't always get along. Yeah, and uh, Fox is a uh, you know still has the rights to do Fantastic Four movies, and so they're thinking of they're trying to reboot it and. Uh, I think they might not be going for something as silly as uh, the previous two Fantastic Four movies they did. Well, I really like if they if another Fantastic Four movie is made, and I would love it to be part of the larger. I would absolutely I would love to be part of the larger Marvel film universe if that were at all possible. But like, I really think it should be done as a period piece. I think it should take place in the '60s when it was originally created. Which was uh, when Peyton Reed, the guy who directed Bring It On and Down With Love, was going to do the Fantastic Four film. He had hoped to do it as hmm. a period piece, if I heard correctly. Oh, that would have been fantastic. Well, in fact, writer of Gremlins, Chris Columbus, was attached to direct Fantastic Four at one point. And they are trying to get it off the ground in the 90s. Well, the other thing that I would love to... That I wish it would be looked in, because the, 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 the visual style created by Jack Kirby and Synot is so strong. I don't see why it couldn't be done as an animated feature, but true, animated yeah. in that style. Right. I mean, the Silver Surfer animated series proves that you could do phenomenal animation that looks like classic Kirby artwork. I don't see why a feature film couldn't be done the same way. Hmm. Excellent. Animation should be used more just in general. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't see a lot of you know, uh, animated stuff theatrically done in the U.S. that's not aimed at kids primarily. It, it is shocking that with all the comic book adaptations coming out, there aren't more uh, animated ones. In fact, I think the well, there, last there's a one bunch I, of those direct-to-video ones. I mean, th- no, I, those don't count. Yeah, okay, they're not they're not really <laughs> doing anything groundbreaking. With no, those. no. Uh, and you know, you can, you can tell that that's from that was direct to market from beginning to end. And some of them are quite good, but I always feel like something's being held back, and that they're not g- being given the intention and resources that they could otherwise have. Um, but I would love. Uh, I was go- oh I I was going somewhere on this uh, I would uh, yeah I think the last I think the last comic book adaptation as a feature film that was going to be animated that I'm even aware of was the comic book Ash about the firefighter with superpowers which was going to be directed uh, by the creator of the of the manga Akira who oh. also directed the film adaptation but that fell through for any number of reasons so Chris what, is there like a book or a movie you've enjoyed recently. I, the, the stuff I'm getting into is a little, esoter- a little esoteric. Well, I'm in the, I'm in this mode right now of uh, just going through all these books I've had sometimes for decades and been and saying rereading them with the thought of okay, do I actually want to keep this or sell or donate it? And so it's been I've been going through weird little things. I was I went uh, so it was a probably the thing that comes closest to being even semi-appropriate for this was that I read a, um, I reread a book about Robert McCall, who was the, the paint, the painter who uh, specialized in, uh, 
in space in outer in outer space scenes and you know things like floating cities and of the of the future. He's the guy who did the the big main mural at the National Air and Space Museum. Oh, okay, yeah. And and he's he was also he he also was part of the advertising of two thousand one. He did design work for the black hole and Star Trek motion picture. So is this an art book or more? It was than an art. It was an okay. art book with an s with a book long essay by by Ben Bova talking huh. about. Uh, we need to do more, we need we need to do more space travel. It was a 1982 uh, book huh. that I've had probably since 1982, <laughs> but finally uh, dug it out and reread it for the first time in uh, over a decade. And uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful stuff. He was this uh, McCall was this very uh, optimistic uh, and guy who wanted to see the technology used for nothing but cool. Huh. So it's a it's a neat w- world to revisit. Well, one nice thing about art books too is if you sell them, they often keep their value pretty well more than other books. So depending in the Portland, Oregon, uh, we have a chain of bookstores called Pals. Do you, you go to that Thrasher when you visited? I think you did. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, okay. Now Jersey Jason and I, uh, yeah. we both went. Good, good, good of you. time there. Yeah, and um, but. Um, yeah, they often they'll accept a lot of stuff, but yeah, I, I I had some old art books that I sold and got a pretty decent return on my investment for those. So it, it all depends, but uh, that's pretty cool. All right, well, uh, so uh, Chris, you got a besides having the Twitter feed at at Splunge Two Thousand, you also have a uh, blog that you do. I'm I'm one of the people that's still on Live Journal. It does Live Journal, okay, um, and it's uh, the fairly easy to remember uh, C. I wonder if I should always spell it out because it's Chris Dash Walsh dot LiveJournal dot com. Uh, but I think I said before that if you go to the tw- my my Twitter handle um, on my page, it has the the link to my to my journal. And, uh, and, and still blogging. I've been doing that since two thousand four. And wow, so all sorts of th- there are all sorts of thoughts on there. So and that's almost uh, about eight years, huh? I, I passed my year anniversary last month. Oh. Yeah. Great, and so the and in fact one of the top entries. In fact, the very first thing you see if you go to if you go to that uh, go to that blog is a is an entry you click on and it's uh, an archive of a lot of the film reviews I've done over the years. There's one that goes all the way back to high school hmm. and some of my some and and also the one time I was semi sort of professional at reviewing. Was ninety seven from ninety seven to two thousand. Uh, I did that as a sideline for a uh, a writer reporter job I had at a community newspaper. So I've uh, I've written a lot, and you might find some of it interesting. Pretty cool, yeah. Well, uh, thanks, Chris, for coming on the sequel cast to talk Gremlins. I really appreciate the chance to do that. Oh, thanks no, for letting appreciate, me talk. appreciate you coming on. Uh, so for the sequel cast, uh, this is Matt, and this is Thrasher. And this is Chris Walsh saying, "Do not feed them after midnight." I that told was Christopher you, Lambert, actually. <laughs> I told I you with Ma- I told you with Magua come great responsibility, but you didn't listen. Uh,